Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from Brazil, Australia, Ukraine, the United States, and a see you in hell from Ireland. I'm going to start out by talking about the most important news on the right wing this week, at least. Uh, this is the presidential, federal, uh, local, just the entire electoral slate in Brazil that happened earlier this week on October the 3rd. Now, there were election results across the country, like I said, but the one that we're going to be spending the most time talking about is the presidential election result. Now, Brazil has a two-tier presidential and, you know, other voting system. Uh, that is that there are two rounds to the vote. Uh, so this is not the end because the results were as follows. The left-wing candidate, former President Lula Ignacio de Silva, got the top position in the vote with 48.4%. Uh, the current president of Brazil, the far-right politician Jair Bolsonaro, was trailing in second place with 43%. Uh, Simone Tebet, uh, who is a center-right candidate, got 4%, and Ciro Gomes, who is a social democratic candidate, got 3%. Everybody else uh, didn't top 1% at all. Now, this is a very solid result for Lula, but it is significantly higher for Bolsonaro uh, than what he had previously been polling earlier on in uh, the electoral process, and actually, very specifically, right before the election itself. So, like, uh, a couple weeks before the election, Bolsonaro's results were really dropping in the polls, and it seemed as if he might not even clear 40%, which would have meant, you know, basically a, a resounding defeat, like like a total loss of mandate for him. However, this is a pretty competitive result. It means that Bolsonaro is doing a lot better than it seemed like he was going to be. However, the third and fourth place candidates, uh, that is Gomez and Tebet, uh, have endorsed Lula, uh, which means that even if like only half of their supporters actually turn out for Lula and end up voting for him, then Lula will win. Now, the math here is very different from how voting works in a lot of English-speaking countries, particularly the United States, because Brazil has mandatory voting. Uh, so that means that the, if the supporters of Gomez and Tebet listen to those candidates and vote for Lula when they are mandatorily you know, required to vote, then Lula will win. This means that Bolsonaro, a far right-wing president who has a significant paramilitary connection, uh, who is connected to parts of the military that don't like the left, uh, who has millions and millions and millions of angry armed supporters, is staring down a one-month deadline. If he can't do something in the next month to prevent Lula from winning the second round of the presidential election, he will not be president of Brazil. This is, this is a dangerous position uh, for people in Brazil and for the world because it means that if Bolsonaro is going to pull anything, if he's going to try to do anything illicit, illegal, violent, dangerous in order to remain the president, he's kind of got to do it right now. Uh, the question is, will it work? Will he try to do any of that stuff? Is he going to keep it, you know, to legal challenges to the state of the Brazilian election, which he's been laying the groundwork for for months, for, for even years? Um, th does it mean that he's going to try to do some sort of coup? You know, would he support his supporters coming out onto the streets and demanding that he remain the president? That all really remains to be seen. The fact is that the balance of power, uh, the sort of strategic situation in Brazil is pretty stacked against Bolsonaro. What he has 
is millions and millions and millions of supporters, but he doesn't really have the support of the highest echelons of Brazilian society. Those people are supporting Lula. Simon Tibet, a, a, a right-wing, you know, a center-right candidate, sort of representing bourgeois interests, is supporting Lula because Lula's presidency was much better for business and the Brazilian economy in general than Bolsonaro's was. So in this situation, we're looking at Lula being the candidate of both the uh, working class and the impoverished people, as well as the extreme tippy-top of Brazilian society, uh, whereas Bolsonaro primarily represents the middle class, uh, the petite bourgeois, you know, small business people like that, who are precisely the standard people that fascism and the extreme right represents. The other thing here is that even if Bolsonaro just doesn't try to do anything in order to remain the president, or, you know, maybe he just hems and haws and tries to stay in national politics, claiming that he is, in fact, the president. Maybe he tries to run again later, you know, like Trump did. Even if that is the case, this electoral result is terrifying because it means that 43% of the Brazilian population chose him to be their first choice for the president. And that is after years of him being a right-wing ideologue, of him being just like openly verbally violent towards his opponents, of his being a sexist ass, of him having a terribly racist attitude toward many people in Brazil who are not white, particularly indigenous people, and of his just like brazen denial of the existence of the COVID-19 pandemic, Bolsonaro probably being the only candidate, the only politician in the world who uh, outdid Trump in his denialism of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Additionally, the fact is that a lot of what in the United States would be called down-ballot races, uh, that is, electoral results in the Chamber of Deputies, which is Brazil's lower uh, house of Congress, uh, their Senate, which is their upper house of Congress, governors, and also state electoral results, a lot of those people were right-wing victors, which means that the country is really, really, really in the grip of the right-wing essentially with the exception of the appeal of Lula himself, the individual person who is an extremely popular candidate, an extremely popular human being, arguably the most popular president in Brazilian history. So how this is going to shake out, uh, honestly, it's anybody's guess. Uh, it really depends on what Bolsonaro is willing to do in order to remain president. Moving on, in Australia, there was a meeting of CPAC, uh, that is the Conservative Political Action Committee, uh, out of the United States. This is a large movement uh, that is trying to make itself a global initiative on the right wing. Uh, it is part of an attempt in Australia to turn their liberal party, which is actually their conservative party, to the extreme right wing, saying that they will be losing to the Labour Party, which is Australia's uh, center-left party, if they do not do so. Moving on to Ukraine, the United States' intelligence branches uh, have said that they think that it was the Ukrainian government that was behind the assassination of the uh, daughter of Dugin, uh, who is a right-wing ideologue in Russia and who is often identified uh, in Western media as the quote-unquote Steve Bannon to uh, Vladimir Putin's Donald Trump. Now, that does a disservice to Dugan and to Putin, who are, you know, significantly more successful than Trump or Bannon, at least so far, in terms of reorganizing their nation's politics. And it's also somewhat complicated because Dugan is actually somewhat on the outsides of uh, Putin's political coalition at the moment. But uh, if you recall, a couple months ago, this was a car bombing that killed Dugan's daughter, uh, and it was widely believed that it was intended to kill him instead. 
if Ukraine is indeed behind this, this means that the war's scope has expanded pretty significantly, and it is entirely possible that we're going to be seeing more clandestine activity on the part of Ukraine against Russia and potentially against the Russian right wing, which Dugan is a representative of in the future. Moving on to news in the United States, there was the beginning of a trial for the Oath Keepers in the United States this week on Monday. Now, the Oath Keepers are or were one of the largest fascist organizations in the United States, and they were pretty key in organizing the attack on the Capitol building on January 6th. Specifically, uh, five of them went on trial on Monday altogether. Among these five was the founder of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes. The charge that they're facing is seditious conspiracy, which is an extremely rare charge to be brought in the United States' judicial system. It really dates back primarily to the Civil War era. Now, the Oath Keepers, as I said, were key in organizing turnout at the January 6th attempted coup, and they were also very important players in the connection between the extreme right that actually did turnout and did like on-the-ground operations on January 6th and the administration. Uh, so people like Roger Stone and Steve Bannon, who were the go-betweens between the administration and the far right, the people they were talking to were the leaders of the Oath Keepers. And so cracking this particular case, like getting these people to talk, to maybe like make a plea in exchange for like, you know, not going to jail or not going to such a bad of a jail, it might be an important piece of getting actual information about how the administration was dealing with these people. Uh, specifically, we now know that they expected, that is the Oath Keepers, expected Trump to authorize them as, quote, a militia, uh, part of a power that the president has based on a 19th century law, which is uh, uh, interestingly called the Insurrection Act. Uh, this is, you know, just like a, a real curious fun thing about uh, the language in the United States' legal system uh, that the, the, the word that the mainstream media has landed on for the coup is, quote, the insurrection. Uh, whereas the people who were participating in what this so-called insurrection, they were hoping that the president would call other people's actions insurrection and that he would essentially deputize them to make their paramilitary activity legal. Moving on to updates about the uh, life and times of Donald Trump, uh, the judge, a federal judge, uh, who has allowed Trump uh, to get a special master in his uh, attempt to defend himself against investigations regarding his theft of classified documents from the White House uh, after he departed the presidency. Uh, the special master, remember, is a position in the judicial system that is sort of like a third party to evaluate exactly how serious or secret a, um, a leaked document is. Uh, so this judge allowed Trump to get this special master. And then it turned out that that special master was like, oh, you know, maybe I'm actually not going to be super helpful to the Trump organization, like like to, to Trump uh, as a litigant in this particular uh, legal case. Uh, so now the, the judge that was going to let Trump have this special master uh, is now saying, oh, well, I guess we don't need one. And that's specifically after Trump himself was like, oh, I guess I kind of, you know, messed up. I, I, I kind of wish that I hadn't gotten this special master, right? So the fact that this judge seems to be just following Trump's every whim means that some people are starting to think like, well, uh, what is it that Trump has on this judge? You know, is this person in his pocket in some capacity? Uh, we don't know. It's entirely possible. 
Another Trump update is that the Department of Justice has decided that it is going to go ahead with a very quick review of Trump's claims that he uh, declassified all of these documents that he stole or that, you know, maybe he didn't actually steal them or whatever. Uh, the point is that they're expediting this legal process. This means that Trump is unlikely to be able to uh, drag this out until the start of the 2024 presidential election campaign, which means that it, it's really possible that he might actually be in the process of being investigated during the primary season in 2023. And that's bad news for him, right? Uh, that means that uh, he won't be legally protected uh, and that he might lose the primary because, you know, these trials are actually happening. Then again, a lot of the dyed-in-the-wool Republicans just uh, don't give a shit about any of these trials because they are just on Trump's side. Speaking of that, uh, there is increasing chatter on the right-wing uh, internet universe uh, about a quote-unquote civil war in the United States. Uh, this kind of chatter goes in and out of mainstream style on the right wing, and it is back in style very much right now. And speaking to that, Donald Trump has said on the internet uh, that Mitch McConnell, uh, that is the leader of the Republicans in the United States House, uh, must have, quote, a death wish uh, because he continues to oppose Trump's agenda. Now, Trump's oblique threats of violence against Republicans whom he doesn't think are loyal enough uh, is nothing new, right? Uh, he arguably tried to get Mike Pence, his vice president, captured or maybe even assassinated uh, during his attempted coup. Uh, so while this isn't anything particularly new, it's a, it's a major escalation in Trump's war on the mainstream of the Republican Party. Finally, I'm going to close out this episode like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, we are going to Ireland in the early 20th century. We're talking about a guy named Ned Cronin. Ned Cronin was an Irish fascist from the pre-World War II era. Uh, he was one of the leaders of the Blue Shirts, the Irish Fascist Party. Cronin was born in 1897 and fought in the Irish War of Independence against the United Kingdom. He then fought in the Irish Civil War uh, alongside those who were working with the provisional government, uh, which wanted Ireland to be part of the British Empire, but an independent state. This was called the Irish Free State. And he was fighting against the anti-provisional uh, government parts of the IRA, uh, the IRA having uh, been the umbrella that all of the Irish freedom fighters were under prior to the start of the Civil War. The part of the Civil War, like the faction that was fighting, uh, that Cronin was fighting in was the victor. Uh, so uh, after the Irish Free State won the Civil War, Cronin became a leader in its politics. Specifically, he was a leader and a member of the conservative movement in Ireland and was a member and leader of the Blue Shirts. The Blue Shirts are a classic fascist organization. Uh, they worked with the then-leading conservative party of Ireland, uh, which has a different name now. That name is Fine Gael. Uh, this is the current conservative party dominant in Ireland. It's, it's currently Ireland's biggest conservative party, and uh, they don't like to talk about the fact that they had a fascist paramilitary organization as a founding faction in their party back in the 30s. But, you know, uh, most people don't like to talk about that stuff. Cronin eventually led a faction of the Blue Shirt Party uh, after there was a, a split, you know, a schism within the party uh, between Cronin's faction and the faction led by its original founder and leader, a man named O'Duffy, uh, who wanted the Blue Shirts to participate more in international fascist stuff, uh, like O'Duffy wanted to send Irish volunteers to Franco-Spain, and eventually did. 
Cronin and the other blue shirts were eventually ousted from the mainstream of the Irish right wing in 1936 uh, as Irish politics was being reformed uh, along the lines of a state that is outside of the British Empire. Cronin then left and went to England uh, to work and left politics, essentially. He returned to Ireland in 1948, or or attempted to do so, uh, immediately after World War II, at the invitation of the Tausich of Ireland. Uh, That is the position that corresponds to a president in Irish national politics. However, he died on his return journey. Uh, I can't for the life of me find the date that he died, uh, so I'm celebrating this fascist's death now. So, Ned Cronin, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Please really, like, retweet this, share it, tell people about it. That's how people learn about it. Uh, If you think it's useful, then maybe other people will too. If you really thought it was useful, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out in all one word. That's also my Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right. And also on fascism 15. And again, that's 15 spelled out. All right. Thanks very much. And I'll talk to you next week.